All right, we're going to be doing another open study tonight where I'm receiving your questions from the Bible, seeing if we can answer them in a way that brings greater clarity and greater understanding about some difficult passages or difficult concepts. And we're going to start tonight in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3. Then we'll be turning to chapter 11 and reading a portion also. Uh, this first question is a, uh, a commonly asked one, but I certainly don't mind addressing it. It's an excellent question, and uh, the answer, I think, is ultimately uh, not directly related to us because it's about, the question is about one single individual in ancient history, but the answer does apply to us in the sense of the principles that... Um, that lead me to the answer that I'm going to be giving are principles that are important for our lives as well. The question was this. It was a simple one. Will King Solomon be in heaven one day? In other words, when we, uh, when we one day, uh, by the grace of God, the saving grace of God, when we uh, go to heaven at the end of our lives here in this world or meet the Lord, uh, if he comes before we die, uh, will Solomon be among the saved forever and ever? Um, it's, a, it's a question that's worth asking because there is a large segment in the Christian community. And um, when I identify this segment of believers, segment of churches, segment of Bible teachers, I'm not trying to do so in a critical way, but I do disagree with their perspective. And that is there's a, a large group of believers who are convinced that a person can truly and really be born again, be saved, truly belong to the Lord through a salvation experience, and then later turn away from the Lord and ultimately be lost forever and ever and uh, spend eternity in the lake of fire, as will the wicked. So uh, the question is, would Solomon fit into that Category Would he fit into that category of those who started well with the Lord but ended up in such a bad place that whatever was accredited to him, so to speak, in terms of his spiritual standing with the Lord early in his life was completely lost at the point where he died and drew his last breath in this world. And for that group that I'm referring to in the wider Christian community that believes in a, a concept of of losing your salvation, Solomon is kind of the poster boy for their viewpoint, meaning he's one of the more common uh, examples given from Scripture to prove, so to speak, that someone can truly be saved and then later uh, be actually and fully lost. So um, I, I'll answer the question this way. Will Solomon be in heaven? Ultimately, only the Lord knows, of course, because there is no specific and definitive statement anywhere in scripture that says Solomon will be in heaven or Solomon will not be in heaven. So we're left to look at the evidence that's presented to us in various portions of God's word. We're going to read right up front two of those portions, and then I'm going to refer us to some other portions as well in trying to answer it. But uh, in these two portions, there's at least the possibility that maybe Solomon at the end lost his salvation. But I do not believe so. I am personally convinced, and I'm convinced at a 100% level, that Solomon was truly saved, and that Solomon had a true saving relationship with the Lord throughout the duration of his life in this world. And when he drew his last breath in this world, he was counted among the redeemed, and his soul, when it disconnected from his physical body, um, his soul uh, went to the place where the righteous dead were awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And that is, of course, not directly in the Old Testament time period, heaven, but he went to be with the rest of the righteous dead in what Jesus described as, as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, uh, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and the accomplishment of the plan of salvation. Then when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, when he ascended back to heaven. We recently studied this portion in our 
study series on Sundays of the Ascension, he led captivity captive, meaning he went to Abraham's bosom and he evacuated one of the two sections of the unseen realm that was known as Hades. One section was populated by righteous souls, one section populated by unrighteous souls. The section populated by unrighteous souls remained in place and still remains in place to this day, waiting for the final day of judgment. But the section populated by righteous souls was evacuated by the Lord and they followed the Lord Jesus in his ascension as he entered into heaven and they entered with him. So I believe Solomon's soul was among those righteous dead and is now in heaven with the Lord. But let's let's look at both sides, both possible sides of understanding um, this question in terms of uh, drawing a biblical answer about it. First Kings chapter three, we're going to read one key verse, and that is verse three. It says this: Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. This is a very, very brief summary of the early spiritual life of Solomon. I say early, not in the sense of childhood, but early in the sense of his young adulthood. Solomon had truly come to know the Lord. We know that by implication in the passage right here in verse 3 because it says that Solomon loved the Lord. And um, we know from many places throughout Scripture that a person cannot truly love the Lord unless they have truly been saved by the Lord. So Solomon loved the Lord. This is the Lord's testimony through the inspired writer of 1 Kings describing the true condition of Solomon's heart at this particular moment. It's kind of like a spiritual snapshot of the condition of his heart at this point. And not only did he love the Lord, he was at that early stage of his walk with the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, meaning he was for the greater part, for the most part, he was walking faithfully in the same spiritual principles that David, his father, was walking in, meaning he was walking right, before the Lord. He was pleasing the Lord. He was being obedient to the Lord. And then there's this word in the, in, in the ESV, right after the word father, it's the word only, but we could easily have translated it using the English word but. It, it essentially communicates the same thing. Let me read it that way though. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, but he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now that that final phrase clearly indicates that while he did truly love the Lord and while he did truly walk in the ways of his father David, which is all good, all to his spiritual credit, so to speak, there was a problem with Solomon even in his younger years. And the problem with Solomon was that he made certain spiritual sacrifices that were not pleasing to the Lord and they're identified here because they were made in a certain location, and that location is described here as the high places. Now, I don't have time for our study tonight to go into a, a side study of the meaning of high places in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament. But for the most part, there are a couple of exceptions to this. For the most part, high places were places of idolatrous worship or worship that was not pleasing to the Lord. And so what we see here is that Solomon, even as a younger man, even in his best moments in walking with the Lord, was for the most part praised by the writer of Scripture. But there's a, a, an acknowledgement. Not everything was right with him, even in this early time. There was a, what we would call a spiritual blind spot in his life. And, of course, it's a fairly significant spiritual blind spot. It would be like saying of some believer today, it would be similar to this. Uh, this believer knows the Lord, is born again, is walking with the Lord, loves the Lord, loves God's word, loves the church, loves worshiping God, loves the fellowship of the saints, loves praying, and yet also dabbles in some New Age stuff. You know, also dabbles in some other spiritual practices that are not pleasing to the Lord, not wise, not right in the eyes of the Lord. 
So what you, what you would have there is, is kind of a mixture of really good stuff and some not so good stuff. But the, the question is, at that early stage at least, does the addition of the not so good stuff completely wipe out the really good stuff that the Lord says about him? Does it disqualify him at this early stage? And as far as the writer of 1 Kings is concerned, he is not writing verse 3 and that last phrase in verse 3 to alert us to Solomon didn't ever, didn't ever really know the Lord and was at the end lost because he made some sacrifices to the high places. All right, so let's look at the second portion. This one's a little bit longer, and I'm going to make some comments on a few of the verses here. We're still in 1 Kings, but turn a little further into chapter 11. Now, you understand in terms of the question, will Solomon be in heaven? I've already answered in terms of my opinion, and we could have just stopped there and moved on to the next question. And if you trusted my opinion, uh, you know, like just saying, okay, I think Tim has done his homework. I, I can trust what he's saying. Um, I wouldn't add all of this additional explanation. But the point of these open studies is not just to answer the question that you have, but to kind of walk you through how to discern the answer to these questions yourself. The point of the open studies is hopefully that you not just grow in understanding the answers more clearly, but the process by which we get from a... Uh, a question to a right answer in scripture. All right, so chapter 11, 1 Kings. This is still Solomon's story, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This is a little bit later now. Obviously, we're, we're um, from chapter 3 to chapter 11. We're years later. And Solomon's somewhat older and more mature, physically speaking, but for the righteous, what you would hope is that after years of growth and years of spiritual maturity, you'd see a greater faithfulness as the, as the earmark of their walk with the Lord rather than greater unfaithfulness. And sadly, and in a sense, kind of surprisingly, shockingly, uh, we see more unfaithfulness with Solomon toward the end of his life than we do toward the beginning of his walk with the Lord. But there's a reason for that, and this portion explains. Verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now, just in terms of modern times and ancient times, um, is it here it's being presented as a negative. It's being presented as this should never happen. This was a big, big mistake on Solomon's part. This was a, a foolish a heart choice that he made. And I'm not talking about the many, the, the concept highlighted by the word many. That's still a problematic issue today, but I'm just focusing on the key word foreign. Um, is it automatically wrong for a believer today to love someone from a foreign country? No. It, well, it just all depends on whether that person from a foreign country knows the Lord. If you know the Lord and you choose to love someone who also knows the Lord, but they happen to be born in a different country, is that problematic? And the answer is no, it's not problematic at all. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, we are free to marry whomever we wish, only as far as they are in the same kind of relationship with the Lord that we are. If they're saved and we're saved, there's no restriction in terms of of interest in a foreign person. But there was in this generation, there's a reason why. Because the children of Israel were distinguished by the Lord on a covenantal basis. And God had chosen at this moment in history, it's no longer this way. But in the old covenant, he chose to distinguish his covenant through revealing it primarily to a single nation, which was Israel among all the other nations. Now, there were a few exceptions throughout Old Testament history where the Lord reached out and saved someone that belonged to another nation, like Rahab the harlot, who came from another nation but joined the people of Israel during the, the conquest, for instance. Or the famous story of, of Ruth, who was a Moabitess, but she eventually, by faith, joined and identified with the covenant people of the Lord. 
But for the, for the most part, the Lord had restricted his people from romantic and ultimately marital relations with foreign people because foreign people were from nations and peoples and cultures who worshipped false gods, whereas his people were restricted to worshipping, the Lord's people, worshipping the one and true and living God. So here's a problem. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. So we've got two issues here. One is they're foreign, meaning they're worshipers of, of false gods, worshipers of idols. And two is there's many of them. <laughs> and that's never wise. So uh, in this description, the Lord goes along to say, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, meaning the Lord's previously made this clear. He's spoken this to his people. He's revealed this to his people. There shouldn't have been a, um, a compromise in Solomon's decisions because he knew that the Lord had spoken to this very issue. The Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. There's just something about the close personal interconnectedness of marriage in which one heart tends to bond to another heart and it's more vulnerable in that bond to the influences of the other person. Now that all works to our advantage when both partners in the marriage have the same core commitment to the same one true and living God, but it works to disadvantage and it becomes problematic when there are two different gods at the center of those two different hearts and two different lives in a marriage. And it becomes problematic in a multiplied way when one man, Solomon in this case, is connected to a multiplicity of false God-worshipping women. Now, how far had he gone with this? Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his heart, or his wives, turned away his heart. He had a thousand idolatrous influences being exerted on his heart, and while he started strong, he was not strong enough to resist that level of influence, and his heart was adversely affected by it. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Now, I want you to notice in verse 4 that you've got a big problem that his heart turned away from the one true God and was turned toward or after the other gods. But then you have this interesting word added for emphasis, which is, and his heart was not and I, if you're one to underline or, or, you know, highlight or make a notation in the text of your Bible, this word would be a good one to highlight. It's the word holy. And it's not H-O-L-Y, but holy as in completely. His heart was not completely or wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. What does that imply? If I, said, if I said about any believer, any true believer, someone that you were convinced was truly born again, had a right relationship with the Lord, but then they struggled and they failed and fell into some area of sin. And if I then later described them to you and said, their heart is no longer completely for the Lord, what would I be describing? I'd be describing someone that's kind of in an in-between place. I wouldn't necessarily be saying, You're lost. they're lost forever. There's no hope. They're gone. You might as well just write them off or, or erase their name from God's book of life. But what I would be saying is they're in serious jeopardy. They're in, they're in seriously dangerous territory. And yet the, the word completely or wholly here emphasizes that neither had his heart completely turned away from the Lord. So he... He has a heart somewhat, even in his sin, for the Lord, but he has a heart somewhat, unfortunately, toward these false gods. Now let's read a little further. 
For Solomon went after, verse 5, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. These are just examples of, of false gods that he had begun to honor and sacrifice to. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not, and here we have our key word again, did not wholly or completely follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. This is one of the high places that that he was adding to in, in Israel. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. The, the, the reference here is that Solomon built many false places of worship in order to satisfy each one of his 1,000 wives. Now, that doesn't mean that there were 1,000 false places of worship because I'm sure there were you know, so many that were dedicated to one God and so many that were dedicated to another, but he made sure none of his wives' worship concerns were left unaddressed by um, constructing a false place of worship for each group that represented each false god. Now verse 9, what was the Lord doing during, during all of this? What was the Lord's reaction and response to all of this? And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. All right, now that's a key phrase. His heart had turned away from the Lord. The question is, had it turned entirely and had it turned to such an extent and such a degree that he was lost forever and there was no hope of recovery. But at the very least, we don't want to underemphasize that his heart did turn away from the Lord. So his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, this is now the Lord's appointed, declared and promised consequence of what Solomon would experience because of his significant sin. This is what the Lord said he would do. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Now, the, the passage that continues on, I'll just briefly summarize what this meant was up until this point of time, God had done a work, a special work in Solomon's father, King David. And what David had done was he had unified the 12 tribes of Israel into a single nation. And he had, he had established the city of Jerusalem is the capital city of this unified nation that was composed of 12 tribes. But for the first time in David's era of of his uh, kingdom, the entire nation was completely unified. And now Solomon has inherited as king this unified nation based upon the, the ministry of his father, David, and because of Solomon's sin, the Lord is saying to, to Solomon, I am going to tear the nation from you. Now he goes on to explain, I'm not going to do it while you're alive. And the Lord doesn't say, I'm not going to do it while you're alive because of you. He says, I'm not going to do it while you're alive because of your father, David, and how faithful David was to me. And so when you die, I'm going to literally tear the kingdom, the unified kingdom, into two halves in the, in the generation following your life. Your sons will experience this, essentially. And that actually did happen, exactly as the Lord declared. And the unified single kingdom of Israel became two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel in the north, which was composed of approximately ten tribes, and the kingdom in the south, which then became renamed or rebranded as Judah with Jerusalem as its capital city. And that was primarily two tribes. It was really two and a half tribes because you had uh, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and then the half tribe of Levi uh, where they served in the temple. But there were some Levites as well in the northern kingdom. 
So what I want you to notice is this. Nowhere in this passage, in this that we just read, all 11 verses, is the single most negative passage about Solomon found anywhere in Scripture. This is the passage that those that believe Solomon lost his salvation, they lean on this passage that we just read. And they emphasize, of course, the key phrase that his heart turned away from the Lord and that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So my question to you for consideration in trying to answer this question is, is it possible for a true believer to ever, at any level, to any degree, have their heart turn away from the Lord and end up doing something that's evil in the sight of the Lord? Have you ever seen a true believer do, carry out some evil act? The answer is, as a pastor and as a shepherd, it's um, not as uncommon as it should be or as we would want it to be. It's absolutely, it's absolutely possible for a true believer to, to some extent, to some degree, have their heart turn away from the Lord and end up doing some evil act. But nowhere in these first 11 verses of the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, is there this statement and Solomon was lost forever. And Solomon didn't go to heaven at the end of his life. And Solomon was permanently cut off from fellowship and relationship with the Lord. None of those statements is found anywhere in the passage. You can read that conclusion into the passage based upon those key portions that I emphasized a minute ago, but they're not actually in the text. So the question is, did Solomon ever get restored to the Lord? Because there's nowhere in this passage either that describes later though Solomon repented and he returned wholeheartedly to the Lord and everything was rosy at the moment of his death. So we're left to draw our own biblical conclusions about the end of Solomon's story. And it ultimately doesn't matter to some essential degree for our lives today, but it does matter if Solomon was ever a true believer. It does matter if Solomon was ever a true believer. So I'm going to share with you eight reasons why I'm personally convinced that Solomon will be in heaven when we get there. Solomon was truly saved at the end of his life, uh, not just at the beginning of his life, and then later was lost. These are my eight reasons. These are not the official eight reasons, right? These are just my conclusions as I read Scripture and as I evaluate uh, God's Word. First, reason number one. Solomon wrote Scripture. And not just like a few isolated verses. Solomon wrote three entire books in the Bible, three entire books in God's Word. He wrote, of course, the book of Proverbs, the, the vast bulk of it. There's some individual verses in Proverbs that are not accredited to Solomon, but he, he wrote, for the most part, the entire book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he wrote, of course, the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs, which is, and by the way, he wrote all three of these, not at the beginning of his walk with the Lord, when he was young and doing really well, he wrote all three of these toward the end of his life. And Song of Solomon is one of my favorite books in all of God's word. Uh, a few years ago uh, for our women's Bible study, we went through the Song of Solomon together, and uh, it, I, you know, I would say it's an impossibility that the man who wrote this did not truly know the Lord and truly love the Lord. And I just think it's inconsistent with the character of God that he would have knowing, because it's not like anything catches God off guard. It's not like, oh, you know, gosh, I had Solomon write scripture, but I didn't realize he was going to turn away from me. I'm so disappointed in myself that I chose him to write scripture because now from now on throughout all of redemptive history to follow, I've got three books in my book that are written by a man that is going to be lost forever. That just doesn't seem right. And it's just not right. And I don't think the Lord would have chosen. I'll, I'll say it this way. There are 66 books in the Bible. 
written by various authors. You know, some authors wrote more than one book, like Moses wrote the first five books. Um, and then there's some books that are written just by you know, one author writing one single book. I am personally convinced that every single author of every book in Scripture will be in heaven waiting for us. You'll be able to meet them and interact with them. And I don't think we're going to find when we get to heaven that, hey, you know, where's, where's Nahum? Uh, you know, I'm sorry, Nahum didn't make it. He's, he's in the lake of fire. I don't think that's going to be the case for any of the writers of Scripture. So that's my first reason. He was, a, he was an author of Scripture, meaning he was functioning under the immediate and direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit toward the end of his life. And um, that implies that he had a certain kind of relationship with the Lord as he wrote those books. Second, what is the other main thing that Solomon accomplished in his life? He built the temple of God. It was a stone structure, but it was a permanent one. And it lasted for hundreds of years in Old Testament history. And it served as an incredibly significant symbolic physical structure in this world, representing the meeting place between God and man. Just like the tabernacle that Moses had built represented that same meeting place between God and man in an earlier generation during the generation of the, the, the exodus and the wilderness journey and the early years of Israel uh, conquering and settling the promised land. But once they were fully established in the land, God gave to his father, King David, the, the interest in building a house for the Lord and the Lord blessed and gave the awesome privilege to David of receiving the blueprint by revelation from the Lord for the construction of the temple. But the Lord didn't allow David to actually build the temple. Remember why David was not allowed to build it? Even though David, in the passage we just read, was clearly highly favored by the Lord and blessed by the Lord, he was not allowed to build it because it, it describes that he was a man of blood. He had, he had shed so much blood in battle, even though he, what he was doing was for the most part, righteous acts. In one case, at least, which was the case of Uriah, the Hittite, the wife of, I mean, excuse me, the husband of Bathsheba, the woman that David committed adultery with, he had arranged for the murder of Uriah, the Hittite, in order to cover his own sin. And of course, that was later found out. He later had to, to repent for that in a very deep and, and significant way. But the point being, the Lord would not allow him the privilege of building the house of the Lord but the Lord did allow Solomon to build it. Special assignment, specially important. But there are three great houses in Scripture that represent the Lord's house and represent the meeting place between God and man. Three great houses. And they're built by three significant individuals. The first was the tabernacle. Moses was the builder. The second was the temple, the stone temple, which Solomon was the builder. The third, in the New Covenant context, is the church, and Jesus is the builder of that church. And so we see both Moses and Solomon functioning as types of Christ in the building of God's house in this world, pointing forward to Christ. I don't believe God would have selected a man that was ultimately going to be lost forever as the builder of his temple. He could have had David do that instead, but he chose Solomon. So that's the second of my reasons. Third, Solomon, and I won't take us to the passage, but I'll, for those who are taking notes, you'll find this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 8. We studied it years ago in our, the beginning of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And that's a portion from the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus himself, meaning the official record of his lineage. And if you trace back where Jesus came from in terms of natural descent, obviously when it came to his actual birth, he had a physical mother who had a lineage, but then of course the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. But in terms of tracing his descent back to the beginnings of history, there's an interesting name in the lineage of Jesus himself. That name King Solomon. He descended from, Jesus himself descended from King Solomon. I do not think, because I've looked 
through and paid somewhat careful attention to the, to the lineage of Christ, I do not think the Lord would have chosen to have an apostate in his background, in his lineage. And I, other than the possibility of Solomon, I can't find any other example in his lineage where that would be the case. Okay, so that's reason number three in my list. Reason number four, let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel. A little bit before 1 Kings, the, the next immediate book backwards. And let's look at chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I hope you don't mind taking this much time answering a simple question, but to me it's an interesting question topic. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. This is after David has sinned with Bathsheba. And as I said, he tried to cover his tracks, but ultimately Bathsheba um, gave birth to a son because of their adultery. And this is the story. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name. This is David naming his son Solomon. And then this last line, and the Lord, and the Lord loved him. Now, what's interesting about this, you could make a case. I'm not going to make this case. You could make a case and say, all right, this is just how the Lord felt, so to speak, about Solomon at the very beginning of his life. You know, kind of like, how many of you have ever encountered a newborn infant? And how cute are they? I mean, what level of cuteness do newborn infants exude? They have almost ultimate level of cuteness. And you're just kind of drawn to them. You know, is it like the Lord looks at this newborn baby and he just goes, ah, so cute. I just love this child. And then as soon as he starts growing, like, I can't stand him anymore. Or is this a summary description, which is exactly how I believe this is intended to function in the text. Is this a summary description? Yes, it's declared at the beginning of his life, but is this a summary description of the entirety of Solomon's life in spite of the inevitable significant failures that Solomon will have in his future? I believe that in spite of Solomon's failures, the Lord never stopped loving him, which is, to me, the ultimate significance of whether or not he was ultimately saved. All right, next reason, Nehemiah chapter 13. I know we're kind of jumping around now, but there are little mentions of Solomon throughout God's word other than just the main passages, and this is one of them. So Nehemiah lived a significant amount of time after Solomon. We're fast forwarding quite a ways in history now. So much so that the temple that Solomon had built had been destroyed by the Babylonians, by the judgment of the Lord using the Babylonians to come in and destroy God's temple because of the the rebellion and disobedience of God's people. But now during the days of Nehemiah, the Lord is in the process of restoring his people restoring Jerusalem and restoring the temple of God. So we're reading here uh, during the days of Nehemiah, who was one of the two great spiritual leaders during this time of restoration, Nehemiah and Ezra. And Nehemiah had, had a, um, a confrontational encounter with the people of God who had joined him in this restoration project. And the encounter was about this. Many of the people that had joined him in the work of restoration had married foreign women. And, and again, it's not just foreign in the new, you know, the modern time sense, but foreign in the sense of from other covenants, from worshiper, peoples that worshiped other gods. And Nehemiah was greatly concerned about this, so he confronts the people of God. And we're going to read in verse 25 of Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah, this is just his story of how he was moved to confront them in their sin. And I confronted them and cursed them. And this is uh, what I would call um, tough love spiritual leadership. Next. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them. (laughs) That's tough love. 
and pulled out their hair. Uh, a few of you have in, in, endured me having to confront you at key moments in your walk with the Lord. Um, I don't think I've ever gone that far yet. Right? Yet. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons. He's talking about these, these, these people from other gods, other nations, other covenants. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then this interesting mention by Nehemiah, looking backwards in history, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? And the answer to that, that's what we call a rhetorical question that Nehemiah is asking the people. And the clear and obvious answer is, yes, he did sin. And the scripture is clear in exposing his sin. But he doesn't end there. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Nehemiah's point was Solomon was a mixed story. Mixed story. He was unlike in a good way, a praiseworthy way. He was unlike any other king ever in history, even in Israel's important and spiritually significant history. There was no king like him. And this line, again, we can't escape it. He was beloved by his God. But he struggled. He sinned. He sinned in a significant way. God is, is careful and, and bold to proclaim his heart toward whoever he's in relationship with. And he's also willing to expose their sin when it's significant enough to require such public exposure, and the Lord did both with Solomon. But the ultimate point, as Nehemiah is looking backward, because by the time Nehemiah is saying these words, and he is saying them under the immediate and direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the time Nehemiah is saying these words, Solomon's already died. If Solomon was ultimately lost, the Lord would have ended this brief reference to Solomon by saying, but sadly, Solomon was lost forever. And there is no mention of that anywhere in the passage. All right, we've got three last reasons. Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, this is a passage that really requires a lot of time, and I just don't have the time, but I have taught on this elsewhere during the long study I did for the men's study on uh, once a month on Saturday mornings. We went through the entire story of the, the life of King David, including this passage, this really, really important passage. So I'm not going to give you all of the context around it. Let me just read the key passage. This is an interaction between the Lord and David. Second Samuel 7, verse 12. This is um, the Lord speaking to David. And this is, um, this is super important for us to understand. He's speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, by the way. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Now, who, who is that? That is Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. What did Solomon do? He built a house for the name of the Lord. We call that the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, there's a, a separate study in terms of how that was fulfilled, even though the Lord later tore the kingdom from him in judgment. I just don't have time to veer off in that direction now. I will be to him. This is the Lord saying, this is going to be my relationship with him. To Solomon. Describing it before Solomon is even born. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that's a saved relationship description by the Lord. When he commits iniquity, the Lord knew before he was even born he's going to commit some serious sins. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But, verse 15, super important, my steadfast love, and this is a key phrase that we've studied before as a church, and that is simply, it's a, it's a description of what we could call covenant love. It's a it's an enduring love. It's a committed love. It's the kind of love that if 
a man and a woman are getting married in the right way in the eyes of the Lord with the right understanding of what marriage really is all about, they're making vows of steadfast, lifelong commitment love to each other. And the Lord says about Solomon, but in spite of his iniquities that are going to happen, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Something was taken from King Saul and he never recovered. He died of suicide. He died dis spiritually disconnected from the Lord because something was taken from him by the Lord. But the steadfast love of the Lord will not depart from Solomon as it was taken from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. To me, this is ultimate proof that Solomon ended his life in right relationship with the Lord. Not because of Solomon, but because of the Lord's covenant commitment that he made to him. Then the next one is simply a general principle, but it applies to Solomon. If Solomon was ever truly saved, and this passage I just read seems to indicate that he would be, and I believe he actually was. And that's from John chapter 10. Uh, for those who are taking notes, you can write down verses 27 through 29. For the sake of our time, I'm just going to reference it. This is where Jesus is doing the super important teaching about himself as the good shepherd and his people as his flock, as his sheep. And he says many things in that chapter about his relationship as shepherd to his people as his sheep. But one of the things that he says in the verses that I just referenced, verses 27 through 29 of John 10, is that no one would be able to ever snatch any one of his sheep from his hands. And then he makes it a double emphasis by then referring to God the Father and saying, no one will be able to snatch any of them from my Father's hand either. So there are, in the life of a true believer, there are two spiritual hands that rest upon you. One is the hand of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and one is the hand, spiritually speaking, of God the Father himself. And those hands are not just resting lightly on you, easily shaken off by, by troubling circumstances in your life or even troubling sins that you commit. Those are hands that are on you with a, not a death grip, but a life grip. A hand that rests upon you in such a way that it will never let you go and will not allow for anyone or any force or any influence to ever snatch you out of that hand. Final reason, turn with me if you would to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is, of course, one of the books that Solomon was inspired by the Spirit of God to write. And chapter 12 is the end of the book, and it was written, I'm personally convinced that this was the last book that he ever wrote. Possibly he wrote the Song of Solomon after it, but here at the end of Ecclesiastes, I wish I had time, you know, obviously we don't even have close to this amount of time, to go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's basically a testimony. And I believe it's Solomon's testimony. It's the record of his heart's experiences of all of the ups and downs of living his life before the Lord. And some hard lessons that he had learned as he ventured away from the Lord at certain points in his life. But this is how he ends his story, his testimony. These are the last words of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll start reading from verse 9. And the, the one that's referenced here as the preacher, that is Solomon in his, in his um, role as an inspired writer of the book. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs, which is how we get the book of Proverbs, of course. Arranging many proverbs with great care. The, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, and that of course being the Lord. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter is this. In other words, Solomon had reached the end of his life. He's looking back on all that he had experienced, all that he'd learned. This was his grand conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon was fully aware. I'm going to have to give an account even for the things that I did that were horrifically off base, disobedient and rebellious and even evil in the sight of the Lord. But his heart toward the end, I believe before he died, was inclined to do exactly what he was advising all of the other people of God to do, and that is fear God and keep his commandments. So that's why I'm convinced that Solomon was ultimately saved, and we will have the opportunity to find out for ourselves when we meet him in heaven. All right, I've got just enough time to tackle a second question tonight. This is an interesting one. It won't take as long, but uh, I do want to address it. The question was this. Is 12 an important number? Biblically speaking, I mean, for instance, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. Is there a spiritual connection? I think there is, but I'd like to go a little deeper in my consideration. So um, it's an interesting topic, and that is the Lord's use of numbers in Scripture. How the Lord uses numbers as part of his revelation to his people. And I do believe it's a very, at the very least, a very interesting study, but beyond just interesting, has some real spiritual significance attached to it. Now, uh, let me just make sure we, as I jump into this for a moment, we don't misunderstand. Let me give you two provisos. Number one, not every number in scripture has great spiritual meaning. You'll occasionally read a number in scripture and it has no great spiritual meaning. It's just a number describing some circumstance as it was happening at that time in history. And we're not meant to try to figure out the deeper, mysterious, hidden meaning behind it. But many of the numbers in scripture do have greater meaning than just simply a a bare description of the amount of anything that's in consideration. I'll give you some uh, tips uh, regarding that in just a moment. The second proviso, though, the study of numbers in Scripture is not a Christian or Bible version of what is called numerology. How many of you have ever heard of numerology before? Okay, not everyone, but numerology is kind of a, it's, it's, it's as old as ancient times, but in terms of current use of numerology as a a, a spiritual tool. Um, It's what we would call a kind of a new age thing. It's it's an unbiblical and unhealthy and even potentially dangerous practice in the use of numbers. Um, I took this quote, and it's just a representative quote, off of a leading current numerology website, which I don't recommend that any of you go and look at. I only wanted to get a quote like this, and it was easy to find one. This is their brief description of numerology. Numerology is a method of divination that uses numbers to symbolize, and this is where they get particularly new agey, that uses numbers to symbolize the vibrational patterns of our human existence. So what does numerology do? What it does is it takes numbers and assigns arbitrary spiritual meaning to specific numbers. Like, okay, the number nine is like a code in the spiritual realm, and it always represents this, whereas the number 13 is a different, it has a different meaning, and it always represents this. And where do they get those meanings that it supposedly represents? They just make it up or someone in an earlier generation has made it up, and then the people that follow their teaching just, you know, okay, well, someone said it meant this, so it must mean this. Um, So when we study numbers in Scripture, we're not doing numerology. We're not just assigning our own preferred meaning to these numbers. 
But the study of numbers in Scripture is important, and it's something that is part of our study of Scripture. And what we're looking for, not assigning arbitrary meaning to numbers, but deriving the meaning from the numbers that exist in Scripture based upon the observation of how the Lord uses those numbers and any developing patterns of a repeated use of the same number in similar kind of ways. So what we are going to look for, for instance, number one, and I've talked about this principle in other studies, is the principle of first mention in Scripture. So anytime something is mentioned for the very first time, it usually has extra significance and it kind of lays the groundwork for our understanding of that concept later in Scripture. So it's helpful to recognize the importance of the first use of any number in Scripture. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the original week of creation. And numbers show up in that original week of creation. And one number rises in significance among among the others that are mentioned in that chapter. And what is the most significant number in Genesis chapter 1? Number 7. Why? Because there were seven days in the original week of God's creative work. And so there is some extra importance attached to seven, not just because we just randomly selected seven out of the list of numbers in front of us and assigned our own preferred meaning to it, but because God chose. Why did he choose? Well, it's part of our study. It's part of our our meditation, part of our evaluation and consideration. God chose to create what he created in seven days rather than four days or 40 days. And he could have done it in a single day had he chosen to do so, but he patterned his creation in a seven-day grouping that we later then call a week. So first mentions are very important. And then just looking for patterns that developed uh, later on in Scripture in the use of numbers. Let me give you two examples, uh, not using the number 12, but using two other very significant numbers in Scripture. The number three is a very, very significant number all through Scripture. The first and most important use of three is where? What, what, yeah, the, the very nature of God himself. He chooses to make himself known to us in a group of three unified beings. Same, one single nature, but three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That tells us if we look no further in Scripture, three has great significance in terms of our understanding of existence, starting with God's own existence as the template. But that's not the only place where we see three in, in, you know, on display in Scripture in terms of significance. Let me give you two other examples. How, we studied this just recently when we were doing our Ascension study on Sunday mornings as part of our study through the book of Acts, studying the Ascension of Christ. And I referenced something we've talked about before, and that is how many in, in God's design of his universe, the existence of all that he has made, how many heavens are there? And the traditional answer is there, there are seven. It's kind, of a, it's kind of an old answer from earlier generations, and, and it really has nothing to do with the Bible because there are not seven heavens revealed in the Bible, but there are exactly three. I won't go into detail about what the three are, but just briefly mentioning again, The first heaven is the immediate atmosphere that surrounds the planet, what we call the sky. The second heaven is the the extensive known and revealed universe, all of the galaxies. And then the third heaven is the highest and ultimate heaven, which is heaven itself, the dwelling place of God in terms of his manifest presence, and of course, the home of the throne room of heaven. All right, so what other example of three? Well, we talked a minute ago when we were answering the earlier question about the tabernacle of God during the days of Moses and the temple of God during the days of Solomon and then ultimately the church of God during the days of Christ or following the days of Christ. Uh, How many sections were there to the tabernacle and the temple? Exactly three. There's an outer courtyard, there's an inner room, and then there's an innermost room. Three sections in the tabernacle. How many sections in the temple? Three sections in the temple. Why? Well, there are, there are related, overlapping, and connected patterns to the use of these numbers. 
Seven, I already referenced, the week of creation. But of course, there are other sevens later in scripture. For instance, we studied in uh, our extensive study through the prophecy of Daniel here on Thursday night some few years ago. Um, we studied the concept of the great tribulation and then we revisited that when we were in Matthew 24 during our Sunday studies. And how long does the great tribulation last? One week of years, seven years. Is that accidental? Is it coincidental? No, it's purposeful. Because just like there was a week of creation, there is a week of judgment and a destruction. And as a prelude to a new work of creation, God was about to do. Now, those are just two examples. The three and the seven, and I just gave a cut. There are many more examples of the significance of three, many more examples of the significance of seven. But uh, the person was asking about the number 12 specifically, and they pointed out one really important connection, which tells me that the person asking the question was already looking for similarities in these spiritual patterns. And they mentioned the 12 apostles and a possible connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. There is absolutely not just a possible connection, but a very purposeful and intentional connection to those two patterns. The 12 apostles follow the pattern of the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, who were, who were, of course, originally the 12 sons of the last of the three great patriarchs, who was Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we move to the 12 sons of Jacob, who become the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. And when Jesus chose his apostles, he could have chosen seven of them. He could have chosen eight. He could have chosen 32. But he intentionally chose 12 it's not accidental. It's not coincidental. He was following that pattern that was laid out from that old covenant example, but now in a new covenant fulfillment sense. Let me give you some other interesting 12s in scripture. You know, we're at the end of our time. I won't be able to go through these in any kind of detail, but I'll just mention them for the sake. The person said they wanted to go deeper. These are some starting points where you can go into some deeper study. One of the things I found, I did not know this before answering this question, and I was kind of digging into this a little bit, and I, I happened to notice this. Um, the number 12, the word 12, is found in exactly 144 verses in the Bible. And of course, 144 happens to be 12 multiplied by 12. Now, I don't know if the Lord did that on purpose, but caught my attention. I, I thought it was pretty orderly, and the Lord is known for being exceptionally orderly, and it's most likely not accidental. Uh, here's some others, though. How many loaves of fresh-baked bread were placed on the table of showbread in the tabernacle and the temple every day during the existence of those structures known as the house of God? Exactly 12 loaves were placed on the table of showbread. How many precious stones were found on the breastplate of the high priest who served the Lord as the single mediator between God and man during the time of the high priest's ministry. There were exactly 12 precious stones on that breastplate. Uh, when they journeyed in the wilderness journey after the exodus from Israel and the Lord led them to a special place for a special purpose in the wilderness it was a resting place in the midst of their harsh journey, a place by the name of Elam. How many springs of water did they find to refresh them in that location? There were exactly 12 springs of water there. When they came to the edge of the promised land, and just before they actually invaded the promised land, because the children of Israel were struggling to trust the Lord, and they weren't sure about what was ahead of them, the Lord allowed them to send 12 spies into the promised land to spy out the land in advance. Later in the ministry of Jesus, when he multiplied miraculously the loaves and the fish, how much leftover food was there? Exactly 12 baskets of food left over. Um, when John in the book of Revelation was given a vision of a heavenly woman wearing a crown, there were exactly 12 stars on her crown. 
in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, as the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is being described, it's described as having 12 gates and 12 foundations, meaning 12 layers to its foundation. And then the tree of life, which is in evidence in that heavenly city, bears exactly 12 differing kinds of fruit. Now, each one of those mentions of 12, and I just picked out a small sampling. There are many more interesting 12s in Scripture than the ones I mentioned, but this small sample, I think, gives you an idea of, yeah, there's probably something to this patterning of the significance of these certain special numbers. I don't want to just arbitrarily decide what it means in each case, but I want to carefully observe every time I see these important 12s recurring in Scripture. And then as I'm observing them, as I'm comparing them, as I'm looking at them side by side, hopefully what will start to coalesce in our understanding is a a basic perspective about the meaning of why the Lord chose to reveal his activity, his work, his ways to his people in those patterns of threes or sevens or twelves and the other significant numbers that he chooses. All right, well, we'll stop our study here tonight. God bless you. Glad you were able to come, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next Thursday night.